0: Turn with me this morning, please, in your Bibles to the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. This morning I'll be reading verses 5 through 13. Our meditation for this morning's chapel is on verse 9. Jeremiah 17, beginning at verse 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at the end he will be a fool. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Here ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Most devious is the heart. It is incurable. Who can fathom it? That's our text for this morning. It reminds us of something I'm sure all of us have come across one time or another, and that is Christianity is a religion of the heart. The Bible is a book about the human heart. It's mentioned, by the way, 800 times, heart. The gospel is a message involving the human heart. To understand how change takes place, transformation in the human life, you have to look hard. Now, we may say, of course, we know that. We know that. We've heard that since we were children, perhaps. But you know, there are many people who have never considered that or haven't thought of it that way. Why am the way I am? Why do I do the things that I do? How can I change? I think one of the most important things that I learned in prison ministry, and certainly it was a shock to me early on, was that there are many people who believe that they are who they are, they do what they do, not because of what's in the heart, but because of what's been done to them. Victimization, right? It's society's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's the culture's fault. It's something systemic about the world in which I live. That's who made me the person I am. So we shouldn't be surprised then that Different organizations, different government uh, groups will try to bring about change, particularly, for example, in the correction system through education. If we just educate people, or if we just increase their their financial standing, make it better, give them a better means of life, that will improve their behavior. But what I learned, and I think it's really very clearly in Scripture is that there will be no permanent, real change, lasting change, unless the heart is changed. And I suppose it wouldn't surprise you if I told you that for many of the students I taught in prison, that was a revelation. That change begins first by looking at one's own heart. Instead of looking out saying, well, it's somebody's fault over here, it's some group over there, or some organization there. It starts with me. What is the heart? Well, it's the inner person. It is the self, the soul, that which is immaterial about our existence, isn't it? I like to use the expression, it is the motivational center of who we are. Your heart is what propels you to do the things that you do, to think about the things you think about. But sadly... Tragically, as a result of the fall into sin, the heart is corrupted. Again, another important lesson in the context of of evangelism and missions is to teach people that we don't just do sinful deeds. We are sinful. We have a sinful nature. And it's because of that broken sinful nature that we commit the sins that we do. And so redemption is not simply teaching people how to behave properly, how to live in a civilized world. It's, it's about understanding how your heart needs to change. It's what Jesus told Nicodemus. Unless you're born again, born from above, you will not see the kingdom heaven. Our nature is corrupted completely, fully, You remember what G.K. Chesterton wrote. He had written a book about what's wrong with the world, considering what was taking place and all the changes in society at that time in Europe and in the modernized world with industrialization and the like and how it was not really bringing the kind of solutions that people thought, this golden age where things would be so much better, but there were all sorts of problems being multiplied The London Daily News asked the question, can someone tell us what's wrong with the world? And among other things, G.K. Chesterton wrote back and said, gentlemen, I am what is wrong with the world. It's me, me. I think of what uh, Paul Tripp says. You, You rarely see protesters with signs saying, I am the problem, I am the problem, I am the problem. It's always somebody else's fault. And so what does the Bible say about the human heart fallen into sin? It speaks of a broken heart, a faint heart, a divided heart, a wounded heart, a stubborn heart, a perverse heart, an arrogant heart, an evil heart, a rebellious heart, an uncircumcised heart. A foolish heart. Need I go on any further? All those wonderful descriptions of the human heart. And now this morning, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful. I'm intrigued by that expression. The heart is deceitful above all else, or devious above all else. I'm intrigued by it because I think at the heart of of mankind's sin problem is the process of self-deception, when you think about it. A devious heart, or literally, I believe, and our Old Testament scholars can correct me, a foot-tracked heart, like a hunter. I'm not a hunter, my son is a hunter, but you follow the tracks of the deer You see where a buck had scraped his antlers against the tree. All the traces that are left behind because the the deer made his path. That's what the heart does. It leaves a trail. The Bible speaks of this self-deceit also. If we claim we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Who would say such a thing? I have no sin. And yet there is... Something within that wants to say, "Well, no, it's not really sin. It's not really a problem. I don't really need help outside myself." The self-deceiving heart lies at the core of our sin problem. Deception is about hiding, about pretending, ignoring, camouflaging, and covering. Self-deception, as the Bible describes it, is that spiritual sleight of hand, isn't it? Where we convince ourselves that it's not really sinful. It's not really that bad. Why do we do what we do? Why do we deceive ourselves? It's not like we wake up one morning and say, I'm going to commit some terrible sin. I'm determined to do that. That's my resolution for the day. We don't talk that way. And yet, how many times haven't we seen in others, and maybe we've seen it in our own selves, asking the question, how did I end up here? Someone falls into a a very serious sin, and the question is posed, how did they end up in that situation? This is a person that professed the gospel. This was someone who worshiped regularly. This is someone who could cite the scriptures, who knew His faith, well, could articulate it well. How do they go from there to one day finding their life in complete disarray? It's because it begins with self-deception. I think it was Tim Keller said that self-deception may not be the worst sin, but it's the sin that makes possible the worst sins. And I think he's right. Why do people engage in this sort of deception? Well, we think it allows us to live with painful truths. How else do you think a mobster's wife can live with her own conscience? I mean, she wonders why her husband doesn't go to a regular job. Why they live in this big house. Why they they live so much better than their neighbors. Sooner or later, she has to realize that something's not right here, but she suppresses that. Or you think of the person, and I've seen this pastorally. I've witnessed this, I was there at the side of a person who was told by the doctor that they had terminal cancer. And I knew very clearly that meant this person didn't have long to live, and yet that person would not admit that. That can't be, because medicine is supposed to take care of all these things. We think it offers us justification for sinful attitudes and behaviors. Right? I was speeding, but I wasn't going as fast as he was. Maybe you said that this morning on the way to school. (laughs) Yeah, I know I have anger towards my mother, but I haven't expressed it to her. We deceive ourselves. And people use it to sustain their addictions as well. Addiction, that's where I first came across this concept in a meaningful way, was a number of years ago in an address by Dr. Diane Langberg, uh, whose writings I would commend to you. She gave a message on self-deception as it relates to addiction. But she began, and I mentioned this in homiletics this morning, she began by talking about her experience early on in counseling in the 70s where she was dealing with the victims of sexual abuse, young women abused by their fathers. And when she reported this to her supervisor, what this person, this counselee had told her, you know what his answer was? His reply was, don't take it seriously. Don't follow up on that. Because after all, you know how women can be hysterical? You you can't, this doesn't happen in homes like this but she said it began happening so frequently in counseling sessions that I realized this wasn't being made up, but a person who suffers abuse may may end up convincing themselves, "What I'm at fault, I provoked this, the very sort of self-deception. Here's what Langbert said, I quote here, we use all manner of self-deceptions to protect ourselves from information that would cause us to view ourselves in ways that we do not like. We use these to avoid facing our habits of anger, impatience, criticism, and selfishness. This mechanism enables us to ignore others, commit wrongs, and feel justified or even righteous when in fact we ought to be facing our failures, abuses, and sins. She went on to say, as deception becomes a way of life, evil can easily be easily practiced by an increasingly dead soul that then becomes presumptuous, planning and actively participating in evil. You see this if you work with addicts because they begin using all of their energy in support of their habit. It becomes the governing force in their life. Over time, the possibility for penitence is destroyed. The soul is enslaved and the habit ends in soul death. Sobering words, aren't they? How you can lull yourself into spiritual sleep, spiritual deadness. You can bring yourself into spiritual slavery through self-deceit. I think that's why the prophet says here at the end of verse nine, who can understand the heart? In amazement, wonder, frustration perhaps. But the same prophet Jeremiah was also the same prophet who spoke of the promise of the new covenant. Here's the good news. That those who are lured into spiritual slavery through self-deceit can hear the call of the gospel and the promise, what, in Jeremiah 31, not of a deceived heart, but of a new heart, a heart of flesh in which the word is written not on tablets of stone, but upon tablets of flesh. Through the work of Christ and his spirit, transformation can take place. But again, it must be, as I, I told the men in prison for many years, it is the Lord doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It's as simple as that. And through repentance, through The spirit working repentance in our hearts, we become self-aware. That's the antidote, isn't it, to self-deception, to self-awareness by the spirit's illumination, by the spirit's regeneration and conversion. And it's been said that we see most clearly when our eyes have been washed with the tears of repentance. Repentance. And that's why the psalmist will say, create in me a clean heart. Who can come before the Lord? He who has clean hands, and you know the rest. A pure heart. Hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, says the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 10. Give me, says the Lord, an undivided heart, a loyal heart. You cannot do that on your own. It is the gift of God's grace. And so as we think about these things this morning, briefly, we think about the danger of self-deception and the gift of new life and a new heart. How do we persevere? We persevere by listening again to the words, this time of Proverbs. Above all else, says the writer in Proverbs, above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart, for it is the fountain of life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word that you've given to us. It is sobering, but it speaks directly to our own struggles, the struggle of self-deception and how easily, Father, we are lured into it. It makes sin seem Attractive, where otherwise it would be hideous to us, and we can be gently lulled into spiritual sleep. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who through his atoning work has given to us now a new heart implanted by the Spirit, who takes residence in our hearts and teaches us to live not for ourselves but for him who saved us. And so, Father, by your spirit strength, we pray, keep us vigilant. Teach us, Father, to guard our heart. Bless us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.